This is MC Fireside Chats, a weekly show devoted to the outdoor hospitality industry, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. You'll hear from special guests that focus on topics to help your business succeed, all backed by Modern Campground, the most innovative news source in the industry. Another episode of MC Fireside Chats. My name is Brian Searle with Insider Perks here, as always, with Kira Sismadia from the Canadian Camping and RV Council. We are super excited to bring you another episode focused on glamping today. And we've got a couple recurring guests with us today, some of which are missing, some of which might pop in a minute. Hopefully, we'll have Ruben Martinez here from the American Glamping Association. But we do have Zach here, who's architect design genius, is going to hopefully help us have a, another good show here. We've also got some special guests. Alessandro is joining us. Oh, there's Ruben. He's popping in right now. I got to let these guys in. We've got Alessandro, who is, I told you I wasn't going to pronounce the company name yeah. right. Vacanze Alessandro. I, I'm from Vacanze uh, Cuore. We are a Italian Dutch family owned ping group. Uh, we, we basically own and operate nine lamping resorts, or actually eight are active and one is still a development. And we are planning to, to grow further in the next years. Awesome. I can't wait to hear all about that. We're going to dive into it and see what you guys have done over there. It's really fascinating to me to hear because I think you guys in some ways are ahead of us in the United States and Canada with glamping, but we'll dive into that. Ruben, welcome. Your camera looks clean now. It was somehow dirty. I don't know. Yeah. So it's clean. I got a little bit of a halo going on. So I was just trying to sort I mean, it out, but happy Wednesday. We, everybody. Could, we could do the whole play. Like, are you an angel? I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. Horizontal here. Anyway. Okay. And then we've got Jim from Novadome as well, joining us to talk about the design and construction of dome shelter type glamping accommodations. And so we'll hear from Jim as well. Where do you think we should start, Kara? Oh gosh, yeah. it's been a couple of weeks since I've been on the show, so I'm out of my uh, element. Been chaos. Well, we didn't miss much. It was just me talking. You missed the guests. But other than that. Yeah, yeah I missed you talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, that's a perk, I feel like. Okay. Anyway, yeah, I'm actually keen to hear from Novadome. I hear you're based in Alberta, where Brian and I are located. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're manufacturing and located basically just outside of Edmonton. Oh. So what do you do, Jim? Yeah. Introduce us to Novadome. Yeah, thank you. So we, we've more or less taken a product that's been more or less available to military and government organizations to create a bit of a marketing strategy and faith around it and brought that out to, let's say the public or more, make the product more accessible. It actually built product is essentially a, a fiberglass shelter comes in chips or pieces, if you might say, and bolts together very easily put up, but what you get is an incredibly durable, long lasting, super low maintenance product that we've seen literally in all four seasons, right from a, some of the coldest Arctic conditions. I literally just posted on LinkedIn today, back in 2016, the U.S. Navy purchased one for a submarine, temporary submarine base up in the Arctic and from the coast of Alaska and different places, we sent them up into the far north of Labrador and they just, they have a certain confidence that they can give somebody around the durability and long lasting nature of them. Yeah. We do interiors so we, from a factory perspective, our factory is set up to be doing some basic interiors. We pre-modulize everything, pull the plumbing electrical, certify it. 
engineer it, crate it all down and ship it to client. And whether that's staged over a couple of dome process or whether that all just comes at once, that's the decision of the client. But yeah, it's been pretty hectic last four or five years and been a joy to bring the product to people that wouldn't have otherwise been able to get their hands on it. So what do you think sets you guys apart from, we see it obviously with the pandemic, camping in general, getting outside took off, but with yeah. camping specifically, it's been in the UK for a long time. It's been over in Europe in general, probably a little bit longer than we've had it. But what do you think yeah. with all these manufacturers, all these suppliers, all these people who make yurts and cabins and teepees and tents, what sets Novodome? What's your one, like if you had to pick one feature that really sets you apart? Yeah, it's a good question. I have. I ask people all the time, are you getting into a business, taking a risk and where do you expect to be in five to eight years? Do you want to be, do you want to have the same condition? Do you want to be doing what you're doing, pulling the same ROI out of it through one and two and three years as you do over five, eight, five, six, seven, eight. We actually have a product that has stud. I could bring showcase projects where these things have been up for the last four, 30, 35 years from an indestructible nature of the durability, but it is a dome. You don't get the good aesthetic for some of the other products that you do get out there. But one thing you can be assured of is it's going to last. It will stick around for a lot longer than you and I. It don't say indestructible because I think Elon said that about the Cybertruck and then he threw a rock at the window and he's going to test it if you say that. Okay. Yeah, we would be, we'd be, we'd be up for that. Nothing people don't, people don't get biting, biting people. Oh, this is like a hackathon thing, man. You can't do that. Like people are going to actually test this stuff. No, the word indestructible takes a little bit far. What do we, what do you, what do we know about Novodome, Ruben, and how some of these accommodations compare that people are like these new companies coming into the industry. There's new people popping up. Obviously Novodome's just one of them, but how do you think the accommodations have evolved recently and changed over the last few years? And how do you think they'll continue to evolve? No, I think what's really exciting about what we're seeing is 10 years ago, as we say, week in, week out. There's a level of it just being about the land and the canvas, right? That's all that really existed. Nobody was really innovating that much. There wasn't all the different products and software and technology and things like that. And so it's exciting to see every year more and more innovation in the space, more and more new products, more and more new manufacturers, because that's what really pushes and elevates any industry, but specifically the glamping industry. And I think the name of the game here moving forward and what we've seen a lot of, and be great to get everybody else's take on this too, is this push towards all season. And even five years ago, people were just really content with, I'll be open six months out of the year. That's fine. That's all I need. Now it's how do I not only be open more, but how am I open year round and how do I really elevate the guest's experience? So even if it's Jim, to your point, a unit in the Arctic, how do we still make that a valuable experience for the guest? Because again, the notion has always been, it's easy to get people to go do this one time, but how do you get them to come back again Mm -hmm. and again? And so it's really fun to see the different executions that are happening for mitigating seasonality. And I think at some point that word is really just not going to exist anymore in the space because people are going to crack the code on how to be open or the guest is really going to choose to go several times of the year. And therefore the operators will, will need to figure out a way to provide experiences year round. And that starts with the manufacturer and the unit itself, because you might have some great experiences on site, but if you don't have, whether it's too hot or too cold, whether it's June or 
February, you need to have an experience within the unit that the guest is really going to like. So it's great to see that's still progressing and that's still happening across the board. Which is fantastic. I think that's a, an awesome future that I'm looking forward to. I can't remember the name of it or the actor. I was just trying to Google it and I couldn't remember. There's a new, I think it's a Netflix show where that the guy from, is it the dad from American Pie? Whatever his name was. Oh, oh you, Eugene it's, on Apple TV. it's on Apple TV. Apple yeah. TV. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, so he, his first episode I watched of his was he was, gl- he was glamping and I think it was Finland. Was it? Did you watch yeah. it, Karen? Yeah, yeah I, I've seen the whole episode, but I did start it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Stuff like that is really going to shine a light on both. Well, know, year. But my, yeah, like Ruben said, point, yeah. yeah, accessing this type of experience throughout the year instead of how we've traditionally seen operators. Yeah, and I think an important point, and Zach and Alessandra, you can speak better to this, but I think what people realize now is that they're trying to be retroactive with that thought process. Okay, now I'm up and running and now I've got to design something that can extend the season, but I'm sure you guys can tell us more about, you really got to be, that's something that was needed to be pre-baked years ago, right? That thought process of the guest experience. And you can't just flip a switch and all of a sudden it's there because those are expensive last minute changes to try and make it has to be thoughtful and methodical from the design phase. Yeah. One thing I would add yeah, to build on what Ruben said, I think another shift we're seeing certainly in our business is a move into new markets and new areas of the country. Two years ago, when we started on this, obviously there were certain areas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, the Smoky Mountains. Texas, Arizona, those traditionally have been really strong markets for us from a glamping perspective. In the last six months, we've picked up projects in Washington State, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Maine, upstate New York, all these kind of northern tier states. And I know Brian and Kara over here laughing, going, we've been doing this in Canada for years, but I think in the U.S. market, for sure, there's been some resistance. Because to Ruben's point, I think there were operators that were looking, going, could I do a glamping resort in Minnesota if I'm only going to be able to run four months out of the year? Can I make the finances work on such a short season? And so I think some of this push into hard-sided units, cabins, some of these innovative prod- products like Novadome are looking, yeah, a 95-pound snow load, we can do that. And we've got these in the Arctic Circle. So yes, we'll make it work in Minnesota. I, I think that's an exciting thing. But the thing that I'm looking at is not just taking existing resorts and getting them to a year-round condition. It's going into new markets and new areas that maybe previously people thought, oh, well, Glendig doesn't really work out there. And figuring out, no, we, if we do the right kinds of units or we bring in some of these new innovative structures, yes, we can do it year-round. And also from a guest experience, opening up some of the new activities and the new things that are possible. I was privileged a couple of weeks ago. We went out to meet with a client on a beautiful site in Idaho and there was snow on the ground. And we had that conversation about, he, he wants to run you around. And we said, well, what, what are you thinking about for wintertime activities? And he said, oh, let me show you. And he had a set of moon bikes or I don't, have you guys heard of this company or seen these things before? Absolutely incredible. So much fun. Took about 10, 15 minutes to get the hang of it and do it. I got to ride one and thinking about what do guests do when there's two and a half feet of snow on the ground? So we're planning snowmobiles and moon bikes and cross-country skiing and all these wintertime activities. 
And then how does that translate out of season? What do we do in the summertime? And we're looking at quads and side by sides and renting, hiking and swimming. And so I, I think that's really excited. And I always really exciting. And I always charge it up when I can see some of these new products that are opening up those possibilities, either to year round operation or to, to new markets. And I think there's so, I just spent a few days in a tourism advocacy summit here in Alberta, and we've always been this really resource-based economy and kind of blue-collar workers and stuff around here. And now we're seeing this shift to diversifying the economic market a little bit. And so this whole concept, not only does it obviously benefit visitors and operators and their bottom lines, but it also changes the landscape around things like expanding your tourism market or bringing more jobs to areas and in my case in areas of the province where maybe they were struggling for those things financing bank traditional banks and stuff like that often saw is like this as a bit of a risk because of that seasonality so eliminating that really has a huge impact i think the ripple effect of this as a whole is fascinating to watch Alessandro, how do you handle the different seasons in Europe? Obviously, yeah. Italy and the Netherlands are different climates, but. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting point because it's, to be honest, this podcast is my first experience with the light glimping on the other side of the ocean. And actually the theme you are discussing is something going on here as well. I think traditionally our type of resorts were built and always have been operated mainly focusing on families with children. So very depending on school holidays. And luckily within Europe, every country has a slightly different holiday calendars. Trying to work on multiple, I would say, consumer markets gives the opportunity to extend your season to a period going from very roughly April till October. But obviously, yeah, we are facing the same challenge, meaning how can we like extend more than this April till October? And last winter, we opened on two of our locations in Italy. We, we tried to launch a winter glamping, which was basically the opening of a little part of the resort because our, our resorts have around between 100 and 250 accommodations. So we opened like 20, 25 of them, plus mm. our restaurants. We created some tailor-made packages for the guests. We implemented some outdoor wellness areas and it was a great success. I think a bottom line from an earning point of view, it was break even, but we had a very good response on social media. So it gave us the opportunity to stay in touch with our customer base in a period where normally our industry is, is a bit flat. And at the end, it, yeah, it created really a lot of enthusiastic returns of customers that probably will, will stay in our database for summer holidays as well. So we are happy and we are now thinking about how we should expand this, this idea for next year. Yeah. And it's just the beginning. Right. If you're breaking even the first year, then there's only up from there. Tends to gain momentum quickly, especially if you're utilizing social and things like that. But that exposure, especially when it's a great experience, will move quickly. Yeah. Especially because we are attracting in this winter period a very different target group than in summer because families with small children are not, my experience, are not really glamping in winter. So you are more attracting generation people and couples without kids. And those ones are very interesting to travel also in summer outside the school holiday periods. So yeah, it, it really gives us the opportunity to, to have a new, a new offer for this target yeah. group. And I think and you, Ryan, to answer your first question, because you said the differences in Europe from a climate point of view, actually we are operating in the Netherlands and in Italy. That's and, what I meant, the uh, difference between Italy and the Netherlands yeah. from climate, because Italy yeah, is warmer year round, right? To be honest, in winter, there's no big difference. 
So what we notice is that uh, in, in summer and in spring, Italy has a better climate, like generally speaking. But in really, in the heart of the summer, in the heart of the winter, it's quite comparable. I saw not on our place, but with some competitors, also people opening their glampings during winter in the Netherlands. And they had quite a big success, actually. I've got a question for you, Alessandro. What are some of the amenities, the guest activities, things that you've introduced in your winter market? or opportunities that you saw, we can do this in the winter as a way to improve that guest experience and draw people in that's different from what you do the rest of the year. Yeah. So basically, I think when we, when we had this, this idea, we had to face the fact that we are not located in a popular winter holiday region because in Europe, but I think in the U S and in Canada, it's the same. You have a destination where you can have winter sports like skiing, snowboarding, and they are very popular. So it's Basically, they are attracting people because of these uh, winter activities. In our case, we are in quite summer-oriented holiday destinations. So what we did, we tried to, we have a uh, quite good food and beverage on our resorts also during summer. So we tried to use, to create some package deals where people could have nice breakfast, nice dinners, and this outdoor wellness. And with the outdoor wellness, just think about a sauna and a hot tub, but all like outside and almost all with a wood, wood fire which, which cool. like uh, increases the atmosphere a bit. And then we, we tried to organize some activities for guests that are like possible to do in winter, like uh, cook workshops, like food tastings, like wine tastings and all this kind of stuff. But it's really our, yeah, because of the setting of our resorts, this was like the best idea. And in one of the two we organized, and I have no idea if it exists on, on your side of the world, but in Europe, you have Christmas markets where people can buy some Christmas decoration stuff. Yeah, I just went to 12 of them. I was over. Oh, in great. So it's, we don't have to continue your thought. Yeah. We don't have the nice, huge Christmas market like you sure. over there. I think we've lost him. Oh, did we lose him? Yeah. I interrupted him and then he was uh, kind of piggyback off of that point. Cause in the room right now, we do have somebody from each side of the equation. The design, the architecture, the operator, Jim on the manufacturing side, because one other thought that I keep getting a lot of more now than ever is people's ability to start as the market continues to mature, there's more mature conversations that are happening. Yes. People are saying things such as they weren't using the term exit strategy as much five years ago, and now they are. And to my point earlier, it's hard to, you can't retroactively set up things when you're about to try and exit your business and exit could mean a cash exit. It could mean your exit strategy is just to hold on to it for 20 plus years and then hand it off to your kids. Exit strategy could be consolidation. There could mean a million different things. And so I just didn't know if you guys across the board from a manufacturing standpoint, from architecture design operator standpoint are seeing things on either side of the coin where just great initiatives where people are really setting themselves up for success so that they can have that exit strategy and vice versa and just common mistakes that people are making where they know that it's or they don't realize it till it's too late that it's just that business is never going to be is never going to grow right it's going to be what it is and that's fine but the ability for people to be aware of what that situation is so just seen a lot of that and just didn't know if anybody had any thoughts on what that means to their side of the business in this space or any unique situations that they've seen in that light. Whoever wants to be first. I'd be curious to hear from Jim a little bit. I I think it plays into this question. One thing I think that we've seen a shift or change from is 
not as many people that are looking for a quick to market strategy. I think two years ago, there were lots of people that said, oh, let's get some bell tents. Let's get something cheap. We've got this beautiful property. We can get up and running. Our guests aren't going to care because it's all about the site. I think we're even hit that earlier. And I think those days are ending. There's lots of beautiful sites. And I think the bar has been raised for what guest experience is. And more and more, my clients are cost conscious about what what amenities they're going to install and what type of units that they're going to start with. But I think people are approaching this with a longer term vision and wanting to make a better upfront investment in a more long-term product in something that they might have 20 or 30 years from. I'd be mm. curious to hear from Jim, but when you have a product as unique as Nova Dome, and that's part of your advantage is a 20, 25 year lifespan on this. What are you hearing from clients and from customers that are doing that evaluation? Yeah, it's a great question and great build process. I would say that at least 75% of the clients that would reach out to us on a regular basis now are talking about, Hey, we've got a site or we've got a couple of sites, sweet products, great products. They look great, but I need to be thinking not only for season, but further down the road. If I am going to go ahead and sell this thing in five to eight years, I want to know that when I made my money back, I can sell it for the same value that I'm putting into it. And the other thing I think I would say is just human nature is not very low. From discipline with ourselves, we might be a bit lukewarm, but when we actually think of things, we get a bit radical. If you said to somebody, hey, picture yourself in your favorite season. Yeah, they're gonna, they throw at you, cozy it up in a, with some hot chocolate or in a, on a chilly night stargazing, or they'll be Hey, an ice cold drink in some hot weather somewhere and don't get these like it mild and possibly rainy, no trees, no, no leaves on the trees. You, you don't see that. That's not what people are looking for when they're looking for this experience. But not a, people that are doing it do have some resource, not a third world environment. It's a luxury environment. So you do get those extremes and we've just recognized just bringing this product to market that what instantly is giving people confidence is that they could go and set up a site in the heat or in the cool, and they're actually using the same product. And that, I think a critical piece of some of the things that we've realized that we have to continue designing again, focusing in both of those directions. But yeah, I would say that a huge piece of the persons that are coming to us, looking for solutions, we're having a, a conversations about extending their season, developing for a four season glamping experience. Hey. Some of them live 12, 14 hours away from their glamping site. There's a modicum more of security on site with the building, the lack of maintenance is time to become more attractive long-term. Yeah. And, and something I've heard a lot, I think I've heard it three times now in the last two or three months, and I hadn't heard it before and I can't take credit for it because I've, I've heard other people say it, but it's been a lot of times in the front end of projects or people in project number two, three, or four as they're learning, but they've already made their kind of their learnings, but they've used the phrase like this or this phrase exactly, we're too poor to buy cheap. And because they've realized that you end up paying for it at some point in time, and usually it's more expensive. We just don't have the resources at this point to develop cheap, design cheap, buy cheap. Mm. And I think that's a lesson that this market is starting to learn. And it happens to be one of those lessons you can only learn once you've learned it type of deal. And so I think that's been a, an important concept is yeah. realize it, you can crunch the numbers and maybe it looks good if you put something cheap on the ground and just get things up and running. There's a space for that. There is some benefit as people are trying to get proof of concept, but really as you're training yeah. 
Ella, but you pay for it at some point in time. You're going to have to pay and, for it if you buy it cheap. And you could probably comment on this, but you do have, you do have the guy who is for the development of the glamping site, which is actually a different style of mindset than somebody who has camp, a campground and they might be putting up some accommodations on a campground. That's actually two slightly different conversations I'm starting to notice, but you yeah. can comment. Yeah, I agree. I think that was, I was going to mention that from the operator perspective too. I think we are seeing a big influx of kind of investment groups and some money that maybe doesn't have a ton of specific experience. And this yeah. is Canada specific. I can only speak for here, but, um, so there, those guys are looking to quickly get a cone, get roofs up, make things happen so they can start getting heads in beds. Whereas a more established operator who's maybe working on a diversification strategy or a way to expand into their shoulder seasons and maybe into the winter. I think those guys are making different choices at that stage of their business than the other guys. And to Ruben's point, I don't think either is wrong. Like the, I think that there's a place for either of those, both of those loans. But I think a lot of the strategy around that comes from how long you've been in the industry, what stage or phase your business is in. And that exit strategy stuff does, I think, come into play in that concept too. If you're looking to make sure your financials look a certain way, that plays into the strategy too. Occupancy nights, all those things, I, I think, are factors. It's very nuanced dynamic right now specifically in Canada I think everywhere like this strategy is so big and so comprehensive which I think is why that you see like people on the show right you need an architect you need a marketer you need a glamping association you need because you can't do all the strategy and think of all the things through yourself and you could even use our sponsor here that I keep forgetting to mention which is Horizon Outdoor Hospitality that does third-party management for campgrounds and glamping resorts I'm really thankful for them for sponsoring the show and sorry I forgot to mention you until halfway through, but we're definitely grateful for Scott Foods and his team. They do a great job managing a bunch of resorts all over the country. So there's my little segue now. You guys can take over with everything else. Yeah, I think transition stuff is interesting right now in, in Canada. Again, I'm using Canada as the use case because that's what I'm exposed to, but we are seeing a ton of shift where I've got some operators who've been in the industry or in the associations themselves for a couple of decades. And they're selling. And so we're losing those assets in terms of their industry awareness and things like that at the association level. Oftentimes, those new buyers aren't prioritizing association membership, things like that. A bit of a loss sometimes to the association. Can I interrupt you just for a second and ask about that? Because I think that's a key component. And I think maybe Ruben can help answer that a little bit. Because we see that traditionally years and years ago, at least in the traditional campground association, I'm not picking on anybody, right? And maybe just associations in general, maybe it's not a campground thing. That's just what I'm exposed to, but they have tended to not evolve as fast as private businesses and a lot of their offerings or benefits or things they provide to members. And so is it a question of these new money or new people or new investments that are coming into the space? Do they want to be a part of an association? They just don't see the benefit of it because they're not evolving because I think, I think there's a lot of people who are involved in AGA. Right, Ruben? Who are these new people who are coming in to the space? And I think part of that is what you offer. Yeah, it, just, it comes down to benefit and all of that. I'm more mean in a loss in terms of those really knowledgeable members. Oh, okay. The decades yeah. of experience. Okay. Those yeah. guys who show up and they're on the board calls every time. They all have great input about the industry and 
because they know it, it's they breathe it and have lived it for a long time. Those that, that's a loss to us at sure. the nation level that I think is can be tough to overcome. And we have to I agree totally. The level of benefit and all of that stuff that your brain to your members is going to rebuild that and you'll get that basis back. But I do There's think a temporary loss. And yeah, sorry, I just misunderstood what you're saying. No worries. Communication barriers. But I do think there is good generation gap or something happening right now. We're able to prior like mom and pop owners shifting out and not as many folks coming in. We're seeing more kind of corporate investment groups and stuff like that gravel those properties up instead of like generational transition or whatnot. I think that has a lot to do with access to financing and all of that. It's tough for just anybody to get their hands on the money to purchase a property. But we're also seeing unfortunate things happen where campground prior campground properties are being bought up by developers and they're building condos and things there. So those are all hurdles that have to be addressed. But I think and I think it's a big driver for why operators are holding strategic shifts to adding glamping, really leveling up their experience offerings and doing stuff like they're doing in Idaho with them expanding their season as long possible year round as they can. Those things are market driven and it's really interesting to see it all happening at once. <laughs> Bizarre. Yeah. And I suppose you do have to, you do it from a, take it from a large investor's perspective. This industry has been what, five, eight years really going from a glamping perspective. Sure. Yeah, we, I've spoken to people who return on their money in two, three years and not just once people who are returning significant amount on ROI on investment money, but that's sure. not going to attract the investors. What is they say that making three to 6% on your money is good. Well, I've seen people making double that, which is incredible. So that I think for us is where we've noticed. There's been the investment of money in corporations purchasing some of these operator sites, but they're also businessmen. So they're also like, okay, we can do this and we can perhaps do it again, but what about the long-term view on this? I think that's where definitely in line with what you're saying is that there's been a shift or there is currently becoming, there is a shift. They really have that entrepreneurial mindset to continue that ROI stuff. They have pressure to deliver investment returns and all of that. That does really drive ingenuity. I agree. So I just a question, if you, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that in, like in the state on newly created glamping locations and afterwards the existing campgrounds, so the idea and started impl implementing it on the. I think we're yeah. really talking about kind of the institutionalization of the industry. Yeah. Oh, when, in its infancy, I think we had a lot of independent yeah. operators. We had mom and pops. We had people that inherited a campground from their parents or had family land that started a glamping resort on. We're seeing that shift. Some of, we, we get several calls a week, new potential resort development, and we're seeing more and more established developers. And, and it's kind of thing that there seems to be commonality in some of the industry that they're trying to exit to get into glamping. I've probably talked to a half a dozen different developers that have done mini storage and been in that market starting to get saturated. They're bored with it. It's, it's nothing exciting about building a mini storage facility, but they've made a lot of money and they've done some development. They're looking at 
what else can we get in? And when they look out at all their mini storage facilities and they're all full of RVs, they're saying, well, maybe we should start looking at, or maybe we should be looking at the RV industry. The same with hospitality. We met with developers. They've been franchisees under a major flag. We've done 15 Marriott's. We've done 30 Hilton's and they're very well ingrained in that traditional hospitality industry. And they're saying, we've seen our numbers drop and we've been to the trade shows and we've seen the numbers that are projected on glamping. And during COVID, when all of our hotels were sitting empty or at 10 and 15% occupancy, all these glamping resorts were busting at the seams that people couldn't get a reservation for six months or nine months. So they're waking up and they're starting to look at how did we get into this industry? I think the last growth number, Ruben could probably help me out with it. But I think the last growth number I heard the flapping industry in the United States is we're expected to top 5 billion in the next couple of years. And so I think when there's that much money, when the market is out there, glamping is not a new thing anymore. Yeah. It doesn't take convincing people to try it any longer. This is an established industry where I'd say we're teenagers in the United States where Europe is probably more the middle age. That's why their focus, I think, is on families and kids. I think we'll get there. I think there's, we're still really driven by younger couples, Gen Z, Gen X, millennials, for sure. I think one of the things that, that we're starting to see with the interest in this institutional capital is that shift where people used to development, they're used to taking on risk, they're used to doing these other projects. And they're looking at glamping as a way to move into a new market in a market that's maybe not as volatile or not susceptible like some of the previous investments. And I think that's what is part of what's driving the shift there. Well, that to me brings up an interesting, do you think that there's, or do we have suggestions for those little guys to stay competitive in this environment? Yeah, I do. That's part of what that's we do. But just the marketing side of it, from my perspective, kind of levels the playing field with the technology that's available to you. It's obviously much more available now than it was even five, 10 years ago. But yeah, I, I would say, I think that the biggest thing, and this is the reason I don't think all this institutional capital is necessarily threatening to a small operator, is there's number, the number one thing we look at from a guest experience perspective. I think I'd be interested to hear Alessandra's perspective on this. It's authenticity. It comes down to what does a guest experience when they're on site. And mm -hmm. I think that authentic experience that people in outdoor hospitality are, are really pursuing, that really wanting to get, I think it's still easier for an independent operator, a small glamping resort to deliver that really authentic guest experience. I a hundred percent agree with that. And I want to give Alessandro a chance to question. Yeah. That's the same. It's the same. It's the experience. And I don't think they realize who it's owned by if the experience is the same. And I also don't think that when people talk about leveling the playing field in some cases, that there's a lot of institutional people who call me who have never done any marketing or don't know what they're doing or, and so you might have the money to theoretically do better than some small mom and pop owners, but that doesn't mean they're deploying it in the right way. Yeah. But go ahead, Alessandro. Yeah. Oh, we can't. Okay. Never mind. I'm sorry. It was my fault. It was just yeah. a lip error issue. Now, I think on the European market, and I'm not talking specifically either, because in Europe, there's 
They are very close to each other. There have been quite big consolidation going on over the past few years where mainly backed by private equity, acquired a lot of businesses creating at this moment two big groups that are having, which is huge for European standards. And this discussion be meaning what's the added value of a private owned company and what's the one who has much, much more capital is exactly the customer experience. And in my opinion, at the end, there will be enough place for both because you have different, probably the, the bigger scale groups will be more efficient and probably come at a lower price level with more standardized quality and to deprive a more margin by having a higher sales price with a higher added value for the customer. And at the end, a very different customer experience, the direction we are going in Europe. And I think that's the same thing we see with the hotels still, right? There's plenty of room for all the Marriott's and all the Hilton's and all those. And they're obviously way larger than the glamping space is or may ever be. Yeah. Uh, but there's still plenty of room for the boutique operators and the small people who, the big people tried to do it, right? IHG bought Kimpton and ruined that brand, which is my favorite hotel brand. But more boutique hotels popped up right behind them. So yeah. you see that? Is that how you view it, Ruben? Yeah. And what, I, mean, I just put one last thought in there to add on to that is that it, it, I think the key word or the magic phrase that ties it all together is what is that operator's definition of success? Because Fair. for example, we work with a lot of people that come in and say, great, this is going to be property number one of 10 and we're going to have, and it's, I love that's the aspiration, but what is your, the realistic definition of success? Because for some, that definition is being able to take a brand and take it to 10 different properties. And for some, it's just having a lifestyle, self-sustaining property that produces some cash flow that they can figure out what to do and have a place to stay in and it's a unique experience. And so I think that last part is that sometimes those definitions become out of whack. And that is, I think, the key phrase in there because until that's aligned, and until there's a realistic perception of what reality will actually look like for them, th then it doesn't matter what that success can or can't be because it's not aligned with what their expectations are. And so I think that's an important note. There's no, there's a million different models that still work in this space. Everything from more boutique to higher end to experiences, not experience, off grid, on grid. And that's what people really gravitate towards this space. But I think the quicker people can get to a realistic plan and pathway of what success looks like for them, the easier everything that we're talking about now can take shape. Because until that exercise actually happens, you're always going to be out of whack, right? You're always going to be a few steps behind. You're always going to do three steps forward, four steps back. So I well, think it's that's a multi-pronged approach too, right? It's what success can look like, but it's also what your definition of success is too. And they blend together and i think it's kind of cool too right i think over time you're i know when i first had a campground fall in my lap i was like if we can stay open for this next year that's success to me but then after that once we crossed that hurdle it was like okay now we're gonna move that target a little bit which no i think that's a really interesting way to look at it and it, there's a lot of wisdom in that statement i think and thinking previous our conversation to contextually to an independent operator 
success could be, this gives me something that I enjoy doing. And I look forward to meeting all of our guests when they check in every day. Their definition of success could be, this gives me a way that I can cash flow and I can take care of the property. Maybe it's a generational family property. And this gives me the ability to hold on to this when I thought maybe that wasn't going to be possible as a way to keep something in their family to a big capital wealth fund that's investing in a project. Their definition of success could be a balance sheet, right? I want to see the numbers. I want to see this work. We've got to be accountable to our investors and it could be purely financial and that's fine. That's how the world of business works. I think there's a lot of those intangibles that can be measured. And I think for a lot of those startups, independent operators, small, yeah, of course you want to make money, but I doubt that's at the top of the list for any of them of what they're, the reason that they're in the glapping industry or the reason that they want to, to own and operate a resort. Yeah, I think you're probably right. It's one of the things that I honestly struggle with. I think we all struggle with that in some ways, right? We have our own internal versions of success, and then we try to kind of project those on others which is maybe another reason that associations are so valuable because Ruben hears them all and Kara hears them all. And then they can disseminate that and talk it through with people. And that's maybe another hidden valuable resource that maybe you guys should promote more often, but. I'll get right on that. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Like I fall into that trap where I think everybody should have the same version of success as me. And I don't really believe that, but that's just what we're talking about. Important. We say a bunch is everybody has their own in any industry, but specifically here, everybody has their own finish line and, yeah. and they're the ones who have to wake up every single morning and be excited about what they're doing. And I'm not waking up for them. I'm not doing that hard work for them. Like they're the ones who have to do that. And if they're not, it doesn't matter the types of tools and resources that's available. It doesn't matter the types of engagements or connections that can be made. And that's the important concept of their finish line is going to be different. And it's easy in this space, just like in other spaces to compare. I want to be like this organization. I want to be like that manufacturer. I want to be like that operator because they set the bar high or whatnot, but that's almost a dangerous mindset because you're never going to be just like, them. like, even if you tried to be right next, there's countless examples of operations that are right next to each other that have tried to be like somewhat like each other. And they're so different right? Because of what the land gives you, because of what the local town gives you, because of what the scenery gives you and things like that. And so I think everybody has their own finish line. And I think there's a level of people just needing to embrace that. That's fine. The space embraces the unique. So don't run away, run, run to that idea. Right. Because no one finish line is better than anyone else's finish line. That's my favorite thing about this industry is it's so variable. Every single property is different. Every operator is different. If you had asked me in the height of those days, the top, my top success metric was I get to have my kids with me all day, every day at work. I got a chicken coop. I get to be social. My extrovert self has all these new people to chat with all the time. None of it was related to like financial performance or any of those things for me. There are other people in the organization who did prioritize that stuff. But for me personally, my own, the things I was benefiting from that lifestyle were bigger priorities to me than the bottom line. And I achieved them. And I say all the time, still, my kids are teenagers now, but I'm great. I, my kids never set foot in a daycare. They were out dirty in the campground all the time. I love that for them. And I'm glad I got to raise them that way. To me, that's a metric of success in, in, in my life that 
I'd never change. It is a re- it's a really valuable lesson to hear, not just from, to, to reinforce. And some of us have heard this before and know this already and practice it. And some of us need, need, right? I need more practice with it. But it's a very valuable thing, no matter what industry you're in, whether you're the owner to, to figure out what your success is, or whether you're an architect or a manufacturer of domes, because you can help understand how to communicate with your customer better and empathize with them and create a better product or service to the customers. If you're in Italy or the Netherlands or whatever else, understanding what they want and what, you know, you can provide to them that's better and just seeing, stepping into somebody else's shoes, right? Is really what it yeah. comes down to. And sometimes we forget to do that. Empathy. What is that? <laughs> the association, best association benefit, empathy. We can, we all have our own finish line. I love that, Ruben. I'm going to steal that from you. All yours. Ah, thanks. The one I've heard is everyone has their own measuring stick. And if <laughs> you're holding yours up to someone else, they're always going to fall short, right? Yeah. Kara, come up with your own phrase. Don't steal Ruben's. Totally. You stole it from somebody else, so. Yeah. Trademark. Yeah. No, I, I love to see all the engineering, the adaptability of this business continues to amaze me as, as time goes on and we see manufacturers like Novodome. Great to see stuff like that here in Canada too. Or I constantly have members asking me for Canadian made product and things like that. It's amazing to hear that we're getting there, that stuff. We're a little behind, but we're getting there. All right. Any final thoughts here? We've got a couple minutes left on the show. Alessandro, I know we accidentally lost you and cut you off earlier. Did you want to finish any of your thoughts? Yeah. Before? Just one, as I said in the beginning, this is the, uh, the industry in your countries. And I think it's, it's very interesting to see that the themes that you are discussing are, I think, 100 at this moment uh, discussed in the European industry. I think at the beginning, you said in Europe, you are a bit ahead compared to, to the states in Canada, calling our rental accommodations glamping for a bit longer time. But based on what I saw, like on, on the internet, things in your countries, and I think it's at least what I saw on the pictures, it's even more thought out than in Europe, where I think we have the big challenge that the words glamping itself have been abused in some case about like how may do we make sure that it's still meaningful for a certain standards because it will lose its strengths. And that's, that's, I think a big challenge we have. So I don't know if we still have time, but I'm curious if, uh, if you have the same thing. Ruben, Zach, Jim. I hear that terminology a lot where yeah, I think because glamping has been around longer in, in some other countries or some other markets that it's easy to believe that it's more established or all these same challenges that we've talked about today don't exist there as well, or like they've got it all figured out. I think really, I'd be interested in hearing Ruben's perspective on this. I think the U.S. glamping market is younger, but I think we're also working harder to make up ground faster. And I think some of the new innovations, the new products, investment that it takes to really advance that I think is being driven stronger by the North American market and probably anywhere else in the world. And I hesitate to even say that because I've seen what's happening in Asia right now and they are working hard to make up ground fast. The incredible things that I'm seeing come out of Asia right now are, I think, really pushing the worldwide market to, to advance. 
So yeah, I think we're young, but I think we're working hard to really push the envelope. I would say if you know anybody in Asia who we could have on the show, let's bring them on and unpack that because I'd love, we obviously cover all that on modern campground, but it's harder for us to, to break into those new markets versus where we are. No, there's definitely some, some suppliers and manufacturers that are doing some incredible phone call yesterday with a group is building structures completely out of bamboo with a focus on sustainable, renewable projects. And it was, they were showing me things even I was blown away by it. And I'm asking questions about, can we use this? How can we use this? And they're like, yeah, we've been doing this for 10 years. And so it was, I think every time we think we're an expert when it comes to something, that's usually when you're asking for one of those experiences to be humbled a little bit, right? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Hey guys, it's just like what we just mentioned. We can't measure ourselves against somebody else. Everybody has a different measuring stick. Uh, no, but I think you guys are spot on and it's just different, right? Every, I'm sure everybody in the North American market would want like what the European market has that where people think of the outdoors is synonymous with glamping and everybody's comfortable with that term and people have been doing it for a while. And I'm sure that everybody in the European market is jealous of just the endless amounts of terrain and land that we have. And when people say big orders, it blows them away of like how much a big order and, and property looks. It's always going to be like that. And then to your point, Zach, Asia, you think of the Australian market doing a lot of exciting. There's always going to be somebody doing something a little bit better. Always going to be somebody who's a little bit ahead, doing something a little bit more innovative. And the best we can all do is just stay on our path and, and, and get to our finish line. Yeah, I think that's, and I think it's great that there's always somebody better than you, no matter who you are, because it, you can choose. Do I want to catch up to them? Do I want to stay where I'm at? Am I happy? Again, but I think that's great. Incredibly motivating. Yeah. Keep in mind too, the rising tide gathers all ships, right? That's in all different markets. It doesn't matter what country it's in. It's all working to advance this industry as a whole. And that's a thing for all of us. Agreed. All right, guys. Well, I want to wrap up by thanking our sponsor, Horizon Outdoor Hospitality, again, for sponsoring another episode of the glamping show here that we have once a month. Super appreciative for all you guys for appearing uh, as regular panelists, as special guests, Alessandro, especially. I know it's really late there. Thank you for staying up with us. And I'd just love to stay in touch with Alessandro, with people from Asia, with Europe, from everywhere, the state, Canada, just seeing how they do things differently and constantly adjusting our perspectives is awesome. Like I feel like you can't be hearing someone else's story yet, deciding what to do with it. So thank you guys. And uh, uh, if you want to travel, if you travel to Europe, let me know. <laughs> no, in Europe. I'll be in Europe. I'll, I'll look you up. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Okay. Take care, guys. Yeah, hey, thank perfect. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com.